Hello and welcome to The Liquidator, the strictly 100% unofficial, fan-powered West Bromwich Albion podcast. This time we're going to be looking forward to an away game for the Baggies against Sheffield Wednesday on Wednesday and the home game against Hull City next Sunday and digesting a dismal defeat against Brentford, which saw Albion lose top spot in the championship. We're also going to spend a fair bit of time in this episode assessing Albion's academy after the news that one of our academy graduates who had made it to the first team, Nathan Ferguson, is going to be leaving the club after opting not to sign a new contract and he will be signing one suspects for a bigger club, possibly Crystal Palace, for considerably less money than the £11 million that Albion had previously negotiated for his transfer fee before that fell down because of fitness concerns. Anyway, I want to talk about the academy in much more depth with my colleague on the podcast, Chris Lepkowski, an Albion fan, 13 years a baggies reporter on the Birmingham Mail, head of media at the Hawthorns 2014 to 2016, now a sports journalism lecturer at Birmingham City University and a freelance football writer as well. How are you doing, Chris? You are right? Yeah, I'm good, thank you, Adrian. Are you? Excellent. Yeah, good to speak to you. I should say as well, as we always do at this point in the podcast, Chris, that this podcast supports the Smethic Food Bank, helping people who are less fortunate than ourselves. So if you've got a bit of spare food that you might be able to donate, if you want to donate a bit of cash as well, I'm sure they'd be delighted to hear from you. Really important work being done in our local community. So uh, get in touch with them, smethic.foodbank.org. UK. If you want to help somebody who's going through a tough time in the area around the baggies ground. Talking about football then, Chris, and that Brentford game, it was terrible, wasn't it? We lost 1-0 to a team who I said we must not lose to. Leeds then won. So Leeds took our place at the top. Brentford are only five points behind us. If I had to put money on a team going up, it would be Brentford. I'm not sure about us. We've played unconvincingly in two games since the restart behind closed doors. We haven't scored a goal in either of those games. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Adrian. And and actually that extends to a, a couple of games before the lockdown as well. I wrote down some words to try and describe that performance on Friday. And the best I could come up with was sterile, flat and predictable, which I think all of those really, the, they just haven't started this season. And I, I know we're, we're still in, within a season, but it is effectively like a mini-season at the moment, a bit like a tournament, if you like, and we just haven't got going, which is a concern because Brentford have obviously started off extremely well. Leeds had that crucial win against Fulham, which you would think knocks Fulham out of the reckoning for the top two, and and it effectively leaves us and, and two others, Leeds and Brentford, fighting it out for the top two spots. And right now, we don't even look like we could buy a goal, let alone win a match. And it is it is of you know great concern. I was really concerned before the game about the pace and power on the break of Brentford. And that's what did for us in the game. So I'm not being clever after the event. I did flag that up in our last podcast. And I'd seen Brentford in December at the Hawthorns. And they're obviously a very decent side. And that's why... In my theoretical selection for the game, I would have had Kravinovic playing because in the recent games before the coronavirus lockdown, Kravinovic had done a really important role, not just as a ball player, and he's a decent ball player in midfield, but as a kind of yard dog closing down the opposition when they try and play out from the back. 
We lack that against Brentford. Neither Sawyers nor Livermore is particularly quick. So once their players start getting a run into central midfield, if you haven't cut out the supply line, then you are at risk. And there were at least three points in Brentford's goal where it should have been cut out, quite honestly. That you know, the ball out to the wing from central midfield, the cross in from Brentford's left, and then in the middle as well. So it was a collective failure of the team. But if you if you attack teams higher up the field, which we had started doing when Kravinovic starts, you can preempt those kind of situations. Yeah, the goal that we conceded was terrible, really. I mean it was a it was a well worked move, but as as you rightly point out, at three different points in that move Albion could have done something to prevent it and to, to allow the player to get from to, to get the ball down the wing and to then get the cross in. I mean, Hagasi for me was the one who really had to make that move, who really had to put that challenge in. But I thought Furlong again was found lacking a little bit on that at right back, and it was just a de- desperate goal to give away. And, and you're quite right about that. But the the concern for me was also going forward. We just had nothing on the flanks at all. We had no uh, service. We had no direct or, or penetrative play. It was just very laborious. It was like Albion was still in, in a pre-season mode while Brentford had, had started their season. It was just so slow and and flat. It, there really was a, a lack of cutting edge about it. And they, they've got to change something. And I, there were a few shoots in that second half, I thought, when he went 4-3-3. And... We showed a little bit more promise without really making life uncomfortable for Brentford, but we will play lesser teams than Brentford. And I think 4-3-3, which is the, the system really that we used before lockdown, where you rightly point out Krivinovic being a, a huge part of that. Maybe that's the way to go. And that does marginalise people like Sawyers. It withdraws him a little bit from the midfield action. It, it makes him play a little bit deeper. But I think needs must. And I think at the moment, the, the players that we rely on for impact, those wide players, the Krivanovic, Pereira, Diangana, and the front guys, whether it's Robson, Kanu, or Zahor, or you know, Austin, who hasn't really played, the, the fact that they're not going at the moment is a major concern because we've, we've got away all season without an actual goal scorer. But the payoff was that we had... Goals coming from all all over the midfield, and that isn't happening right now, and it's a big concern. I saw one tweet during the game, somebody saying, "Oh, I, I bet it'll be, I bet it'll all be Matt Phillips' fault now." Not directed at me or at us. And I've got to say, over many years at the Hawthorns, I've been a big fan of Matt Phillips. I think he's been a, an excellent player for most of his time at Albion. I'm not sure he's been excellent this season, and I know he hasn't been excellent in this period since we've come back. I thought he was dreadful with the game against Blues, quite honestly. He'd sometimes get into good positions to cross, then check back or just hit the defender with his cross. And I'm sorry, if you're a wing player in a team like this, you've got to be getting those crosses over. He was awful again and was withdrawn at half-time against Brentford. On the other flank, I was equally disappointed with Dean Garner. Of course, he has the the excuse, I suppose, that he's coming back from a long layoff. They're all back, I suppose, after a long layoff because of coronavirus. But Dean Garner had had injury problems before that. So he isn't up to, up to match fitness. But we rely as a team, because we haven't got a natural striker, we rely 
on players getting to the byline and pulling the ball back or going past players from wide and maybe cutting in and scoring goals as, as Dean Garner has done on plenty of occasions this season. I, I, I don't know how you fix this because if the players aren't in form, they're not in form. But that's where I'm looking at the big question mark in the team. For me, how Robson Carno has done nothing wrong. He, he does what he does. He can hold the ball up. Zahor came on. A half time and sort of excited everybody with that shot from range that hit the crossbar. But the ball does not stick at Zahor's feet. And for me, he cannot start a game because the way that we play, which is the ball play to feet, hold the ball, look up, pass out. Zahor can't play that. I've no idea how Zahor was recruited. I don't think he's good enough for West Bromwich Albion. I don't want to slate the guy. You know, good luck to him with the rest of his career. But I can't, I, it just doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the squad that we have. And it, there's a tendency then to go long when Zahor plays. And again, that, that's not how we play. It just doesn't work with the rest of our game. No, I, I don't understand as a whole signing at all. I mean, there the are a couple of things you mentioned there. Now, firstly, for, for Albion to be spending £9 million, that player has to be absolutely bang on. They cannot waste money like that on players because they simply don't have the, the wherewithal financially to, to be able to take those risks. Now, the, the concern for me was that a manager at the time, Cardiff manager Neil Warnock, was willing to allow him to go to a championship rival. And that for me should have had a few, you know, should have come with a few blue flashing lights, quite frankly, because A, why is Warnock willing to allow one of his main strikers to go and B, um, why are West Brom paying so much for a player who, you know, on the face of it, didn't have a particularly great track record to start with. And I know a few people who have worked with Zahor in the past at other clubs. And I have to say that when we did sign him, I, I, one of the people got in touch with me and, and his scouting report, if you like, for want of a better word, really wasn't particularly encouraging. And I, I just feel that we made some really good signings last summer, um, you know, in, in January as well. But I think Zahor definitely goes one with a big X next to his name. Yeah, I think so. And Charlie Austin, people are saying, why isn't Austin being given a chance? Well, I can tell you why Charlie Austin isn't being given a chance. Certainly to start a game, because he cannot be relied on to last for 90 minutes. Not even that in a, an era of five substitutions. Charlie Austin can't be relied on to go full pelt for 60 minutes. Now, that's not to say he's all washed up and he's got nothing to offer. I think Charlie Austin, as an impact sub, definitely still has got something to offer, as we've seen most obviously in the Blues game this season, but in other matches as well. But Charlie Austin is not going to give you that mobility up front that Hal robson Carnu gives you, covering all the space, going wide, coming inside, laying the ball off. That's not what he does. It may have been what he used to do, but it's certainly not what he does now. He can make a difference. But for me, the only player who can start for us, if we're going to hope to win matches, is, is Hal robson Carney. That's always the, uh, the the great myth about football, is the player who can't get into the team is always the best player in the team. He should be in the team. <laughs> you know, whether it's Austin, Grosicki, another one who... You know, has been where, where is he? Why hasn't he been playing? You know, the, these players aren't playing for a good reason, and that's because the manager sees them all week, sees what they're doing, what they're not doing, and, and chooses a team based around that and based around the, the strengths and weaknesses of the opposition he's playing. And I, I, you know, Charlie Austin has had some really good contributions this season, but he hasn't done it enough times, and I just don't get 
I just don't get him. I, I don't understand how a player with such relative young years in, in terms of being a professional footballer just looks so, just seems to have declined so much this season. And, you know, he has chipped in with a few goals, but it hasn't been enough. And he just doesn't look the player that we saw a couple of years ago. And it's a huge disappointment. And, and at a time where we need players to be, you know, shooting, firing and, and scoring goals that, that we're talking about three strikers who in essence, none of whom are great goal scorers. No, well, at least Al Robson Carnu's defence is that he never claimed to be, I suppose. He was never signed for that. So he's doing us a job, isn't he? But in Austin's case, I think he did have a pretty bad injury, didn't he? But I know that when he came to us for what seemed like a bargain four million quid from Southampton, a lot of Saints fans on social media were sort of laughing about it. He he didn't really add to his reputation in his time at Southampton. But you see that sometimes with a player. You know, they just need a bit more time, maybe dropping out of division, gives him a little bit more space to do what he can do still. Maybe not quite a top-flight player, but able to cut it in the championship. And there's no doubt in terms of eye for goal, Charlie Austin has got that. But again, the way we play, you've got to have a, a forward who is willing to forage for you. And I, I think with all due respect to Charlie Austin, he isn't that player. If he ever was, he isn't that player now. That isn't to say he can't do a job off the bench but for me, it's it's got to be how Robson Carnu started. I mean, the next two games, Chris, do at least give us an opportunity, based on the league table anyway, to get a few points on the board. Sheffield Wednesday on Wednesday, although they've had a good weekend win against Bristol City, no mean feat, away at Ashton Gate, winning 2-1. They're a workman-like side, Sheffield Wednesday, but nothing to fear there. And then Hull City, who drew 3 all with Birmingham, at the weekend. Hall City with the club who famously in the transfer window sold their two best players, Jared Bowen for I think 25 million to West Ham and Kamal Krasicki to us since when they've absolutely nosedived and uh, presumably they thought they were safe. They got rid of players either because their contract was coming up, which is the case of Grzycki, or because in Bowen's case, they knew they'd get a, they'd probably never get a better offer for them. But they gambled, didn't they, that they'd be safe. And, and now they're knocking on the door of League One as things stand. And you'd say in normal times, if we hadn't had this horrible couple of games that we've just had, that Albion should be looking for six points from these two matches. You would think so, Adrian, because, I mean, Sheffield Wednesday... Um, they've had a good result this weekend, but really we we need to be winning those sort of games if we want to maintain where we are in the table. And I know there's a really negative feel to this whole period at the moment because of how Albion had started, but you know we are still several points ahead with games running out. And I was going through the permutations a few uh, days ago and or a couple of days ago, and I I, I still think that. Three more wins and a couple of draws will be enough. It should be enough. Four wins, I think, would be definite. So if we can get results against Tullin against Wednesday coming up on uh, in midweek, then I think we've got a really, really strong chance. And it, it, it'll put behind you know what has been a fairly miserable first couple of games for us. Yeah, I think if in either of those games we'd peppered the goal and just got unlucky, I don't think there would be the air of negativity, but I think it has just felt so flat. And obviously you're looking for your team to come out of the traps. We've had a longer break than you would have in a normal close season. And you want your team to be up and at them. The first 20, 25 minutes against Birmingham, in fairness, we were like that. We did play with an intensity, but that kind of fizzled out in that game. All right, nil-nil draw, first game. 
But in the second game against Brentford, we didn't even start like that. And belatedly, we showed a bit of life. And but it was really pretty poor all round. I think that's why there is this air of negativity. But uh, you mentioned Grisicki a moment ago, and I think when we were talking last week, you'd flagged up the fact that neither he nor Chris Brunt had even been on the bench, which considering there are nine players on the bench now, that that was a little bit odd. And I must say, when I've seen Grisicki coming off the subs bench, he's looked quick, he's looked dangerous and gives us another option, doesn't he, if, if Dean Garner isn't firing. I mean, we're overstocked in that department because we've got D, Dean Garner, we've got Callum Robinson, but it is odd to me as well now that he isn't featuring. And as you say, the, the player who doesn't get picked is always the, is always the best one because it's easy when a team's not doing well to imagine that the other player would have made a contribution. Well, Krositsky's an interesting example because I kind of watched him for a long time before he came to Hull and I actually went back to some of my social media comments at the time of when he joined Hull and when he was being linked with other clubs. And where had he come from then Chris? What do you know about him? Um, Well he he, I mean he played for uh, he's been a Polish international for many years he's very close to Robert Lewandowski and you know he's got in excess of 70 caps these days Grozitski so he's always had a really strong presence in the national team and he's one of these wingers who can go two or three games playing really well and then can drift out for several matches but he's he's been there or thereabouts of the team for many years and the reason I mentioned him I went back over some of my social media posts a few from a few years ago when he was first moving to Hull and then when he was subsequently linked with moves to Burnley and then moved to us and, and was linked with us. And I think a few times I, I kind of mentioned the fact that you have to err on caution with, with Grzycki. He's not just somebody you manage as a f- footballer because of the talent he has, but he's also somebody you have to manage as a personality because he does have this lifestyle that that perhaps not all managers and coaches approve of. He's, he's had his issues in the past, shall we say, gambling issues and other habits that maybe footballers should try and avoid. It's no shock that in the past, at the start of seasons, he has always been quite a slow starter. He's always been one of these players who's had had to catch up with his fitness. And although I was surprised to not see him involved, it's kind of making me think, well, maybe it's happened again. For what it's worth, I think he'll play this week. I think he'll certainly play a significant part against Wednesday and against Hull assuming he's fit, which uh, as far as we're aware and have been told he is. So it'll be interesting to see how he gets on from here, because like I say, in the past, when he's been at clubs, he has been a little bit slow at the start of seasons and he's had to catch up with fitness. He's been a little bit out of shape when he's returned back to clubs. And I'm not saying he's been overweight or anything like that, but there's a certain level of fitness that clubs demand. And there's a certain level of fitness that comes with playing matches. And I think he falls between the two at the moment. I don't think he, from what I can gather from what I've seen in the past, he may be just lacking that little bit of match fitness that's required to start games. So it'll be interesting whether one week on from when we first started, which will be 10 days on, whether he'll play against Wednesday this week. 
Yeah, I think he's spoken quite openly about having a gambling addiction. He went to a gambling rehab centre. That was more than a decade ago now. And you'd hope that he's learned his lesson, that he's turned his life around. But as you say, there's a difference, isn't there, between being fit, as, as you and I might regard it, and being at top level fitness that you require to be a professional footballer. Now, I don't know if he falls below that standard at the moment. But you have to ask the question, don't you? If a 20-man squad doesn't have room for a new signing, like you, though, I, I sense that if only because the players who've been playing haven't really delivered, then I suspect he, he will get a chance either to start or, or from the bench. Uh, speaking of which, Chris, then, for the game against Sheffield Wednesday, I'm going to propose that we start with Johnson in goal. I would keep the back four. I agree with you, though. I don't think Furlong, who I like very much, had a great game against Brentford, but he gives us an attacking option. Uh, I'd keep him. Uh, uh, Jay uh, and Hagazi in centre defence and Gibbs at left back. Sawyers and Livermore in central midfield, although I don't think that partnership has worked particularly well in these last two games. So I'll just put a little marker down there for the future. Pereira wide right, Kravinovic in the hole, and then I would bring back Callum Robinson to start on the left. He played against Blues, came on very late against Brentford, 79th minute. I'd give Robinson another go and I'd have Hal robson Carnu starting. So that would be my starting lineup. but I would definitely have Grisicki on the bench as an option. So I've dropped Dean Garner. That's my, that's my big change for the game against Wednesday. What about you? Well, I'll bring O'Shea back in straight away at, at right back. Ordinarily, I'd be replacing Kogazi too with Bartley. I'm not a huge Kogazi fan, as I've said many times before, and that that performance on that mistake on Saturday really put the tin hat on it. But I think Wednesday do carry carry an aerial threat for that reason. I'm more likely to stick with him. Midfield, I've played a three of Sawyer's, Livermore, Kravanovic just ahead of them, with Sawyer's playing the deepest of the three, if you like, and I'd have. Dean Garner on the left, I would have Pereira on the right. Robson Canu would be up front and I'd have a bench which would include Chris Brunt. Um, well, I think it's absolute madness not to have him on the bench. I mean, a, a guy with his delivery, a guy of his experience, where is he? He should be there. Nobody expects him to start these days. Let's, you know, we're, we're not calling for him to be leading the team out, but how can you not have a player? And, and by the way, Billich just said we've got a clean bill of health, so you have to assume that Brunt is fit. So how can you not have a guy who has done so much and brought so many goal-changing moments to teams in the past? How can you not have him on the bench? I don't understand that. And and I think Grosicki has to re-emerge maybe he needed a couple more games to catch up with wherever he is fitness-wise. And I think he he certainly would be um, a good one to bring off the bench in these games. Of course, one of them's against his former club, which is always nice because, you know, players do tend to... Ha- habit does follow that they tend to score or do well against those clubs. So I think those would be my changes. But a definite, re- definite shift back to 4-3-3, which I think served us so well before the lockdown. 
Hmm. You talk about Dean Garner. Uh, no, don't get me wrong. I love Dean Garner. If Albion can sign him at a reasonable fee, I think we should. He's got fantastic talent and he's got some great goals for us this season. Against Brentford, and again, I'm factoring in the fact that he hadn't played much first-team football or any first-team football before the lockdown because he'd been injured, and I'm glad that we've got him back in the squad. But as well as his fantastic attributes, he does have a tendency to run into trouble, to overplay. And we saw all that against Brentford to just make the the wrong decision, which, of course, a lot of young players do. And part of developing from a, a young player coming through to a, a seasoned pro is that you, you stop making the wrong decisions. But Dean Garner, when he's not good, it, it's not just that he's not effective, but he can sometimes play us into trouble because he's liable to give the ball away. So I'd just give him another little breather. I would probably have him on the bench. I'd probably have Grisicki on the bench, although how many left-wingers can you have? But I'd have, I'd start Callum Robinson, who I, I had an uncharacteristically subdued game against Birmingham City and perhaps isn't quite as spectacular as Dean Garner, but for me, arguably offers us more all-round to the team. I like Robinson uh, very much. I think going back to Krasicki, I think one of his strengths is that he can play left or right wing. When he's come on, he's tended to play left wing for us, hasn't he? He has, but he's you know he spent a lot of his career on the right as well. So he, he's one of these, um, without wishing to compare him to Chris Waddle, he has got, got that ability to play on two different flanks, even if it's on his wrong foot. So I wouldn't necessarily rule him out of playing on the right either. And I think you're right about Phillips. I mean, I was lauding him last time, but... I think right now when we're in the middle of a nine-game tournament, as it is a nine-game season, you have to play well every game or you risk losing your place. And for me, Phillips has struggled in two games now. And I think, you know, the hook is uh, is, is nearing him, really. I think I, I, I would be inclined to make that change as well this week. Let's talk about Albion's academy then, the route through which talented young players from mostly our local community work their way through to become professional footballers. And I think it's fair to say that has been a source of real pride for Albion fans over recent seasons. We've seen a string of really talented young players coming through. Saido Berahino, we know it kind of all went wrong for him, but still a real feather in the cap for the club's academy. Dara O'Shea, who has become a, a semi-regular starter under Slaven Bilic. We've had players like Jonathan Leeko, Kyle Edwards, who is knocking on the door of a first-team place at the moment, Sam Field, another, in my view, very talented footballer. But in recent times, there's been a feeling that Albion have been a bit short-changed by the system, losing players like Louis Barry, who went for peanuts to Barcelona. Peanuts we haven't even received, by the way. Barcelona then sold him on for a bigger fee to Aston Villa. How that's come about, and we haven't even got any money for it, I just am at a loss to explain. And, of course, Nathan Ferguson, who in the January transfer window was slated to go to Crystal Palace for £11 million or thereabouts, failed a medical has declined a new contract offer at West Bromwich Albion, will now leave and probably not for anything like the £11 million that Crystal Palace previously offered. We will get a fee for Ferguson because he was a pro, but we don't know. That'll have to be decided at some kind of tribunal. So I just put it out there on Twitter earlier, Chris, in light of the, the Louis Barry situation, in light of the Nathan Ferguson situation, should Albion scrap the academy? Should they keep it? I should say, 
82% of the 111 people who voted on Twitter said Albion should keep it. Only 17% said they should scrap it. So a, a real feeling of affirmation for the academy from that admittedly small group of supporters who joined in on Twitter. I'm not sure, if I'm honest, when you read the quotes from the football club, that currently they share that enthusiasm for the academy, not least because they're probably probably cheesed off at, at, at having players sold and from under their noses very cheaply. I'm with the 82% actually, and I completely sympathise with the club on this. And, and I'll try and give you a little bit of context, if I can, to all of this. And, and you're right to point out the players who have gone, Louis Barry, there have been others, um, Jerome Sinclair, Jan Dander, Izzy Brown, of course, who left. And Albion really have been stung by this over the last few years. And to give you some context, Albion, one of the clubs who signed up to P, which is the Elite Player Performance Plan, a few years ago. And the hope was that it would stop players from being snared by bigger clubs. And I remember Jeremy Peace was chairman at the time, and he actually said that the when he went to the meeting for all of this to be ratified and rubber stamped, he could actually see members of bigger clubs sat there with lists of names, drawing rings and ticking off players that they thought they might pursue at other clubs. And it was very evident there that Category 1 clubs, and Albion are Category 1 club, and what we mean by that is they're, they're at the very top, they're the leading cutting edge of the academy clubs. They've invested a lot, they've got the facilities, they've got the staff, and, and it's basically the top tier of that particular level. Now, Jeremy Peace's hope at the time was that actually bigger clubs, also Category 1 clubs, wouldn't come at and snare away players from other Category 1 clubs. So he he felt that Albion should be at least guaranteed to keep their best players. And as I've just said, it quickly became apparent that that wasn't the case. And I think the biggest, almost high, most high-profile departure really was Izzy Brown, who, who went to Chelsea. I mean, he, he went as a 16 or 15-year-old, if I stand corrected. He went for a, a weekly wage of £20,000 a week, and he immediately signed a £100,000 boot deal. Now, Albion cannot compete with that when it comes to 15, 16-year-olds. And, and the worst of it was that Albion invested at the time £2.5 million into their academy. And for an academy to run on an annual basis, cost between one and a half and £2 million. So it's not a cheap process. And at the time, anyone leaving, and, and in fact, this is still the case, any player leaving then was going for under £210,000. I think that limit's been slightly higher now. So actually, the, the players that were being poached by bigger clubs, Albion weren't getting much for it. But on the flip side, you're right to mention Saido Berahino, who, you know, let, let's be honest, had Saido been the player that we hoped and thought he would be, he probably would have joined Tottenham for £20 million or £25 million at the time that they were sniffing around him. Obviously, his value dropped. He ended up going for £12 million. Now, £12 million isn't a lot for a player who could have gone for £20 million a few years before, but actually that £12 million immediately pays for the academy. Well, it pays for the academy for six years, doesn't it? So you only need an occasional Berahino. Obviously, ideally, you want them to be playing for your first team, but football being football, you also have to acknowledge they may well have a transfer value. But it's interesting to look at it in that context, isn't it? So is that roughly the, the figure that we think the academy costs to run now, then about £2 million a year? That, I've seen Brentford quoted that figure 
who scrapped theirs. <laughs> I mean, it is about two million, give or take the odd six figures some here or there. And but that's what clubs account for, and they kind of expect that. And you know, the hope is that you deliver a production line that Southampton had where they had a, a series of players who one by one were cherry picked off by Liverpool and Manchester United. And yes, that's frustrating as supporters, but actually it allows you to reinvest that money into the playing squad and bring in better players. And I think the one danger of scrapping an academy from a point of view of a club like Albion, if Albion were to not go up or if they were to spend a a substantial period outside the Premier League, the academy is where you're looking to get your players from. That's where you're picking players to to come into your 11, hoping that players can step up. Because actually, the academy isn't of much use to teams in the Premier League for clubs like Albion. You know, Tony Pulis gave Sam Field a go. He gave Carl Edwards a go. Saido Berahino came through under Steve Clark and was later used by Tony Pulis. But generally, managers in the Premier League don't want to rely on those academy players. And that's the that's the kind of issue that clubs like Albion have. When they've got aspirations of being a Premier League club, that doesn't always sit comfortably with the notion of bringing players through from the academy because, of course, managers want that quick fix. Rather than invest time in a Sam Field or a Dara O'Shea, they'd rather spend 10, 15, 20 million on a player who already has those attributes but has the experience and has the general know-how how to play at that level, whereas with any youngster, you're taking a gamble. The Nathan Ferguson situation, though, is a bit frustrating, isn't it? Because he's a lad who people will have seen the social media pictures of him dancing as a little kid, delighted to have signed his forms, I think, when he was eight. And having been really properly brought up through the club system and the sense that he really is one of our own. And then you get this quite unseemly battle between the club and presumably Nathan Ferguson's agents. In the end, Ferguson walks away and it's clear at that point that there's a kind of sour taste on both sides. And and, and you just think, oh, can't it be handled with a bit more grace? It would be much better. We all understand that footballers ultimately will go where the best career opportunity is for them. And you can't really blame them for that. They're workers with a a relatively short playing career and all that sort of stuff. But if it could be done with good grace and you said, well, look, Nathan, you're off to maybe not Crystal Palace, but Nathan, if you're off to Tottenham Hotspur or Man United, we get that. Good luck to you. But the way in which it's kind of emerged is really just kind of leaves a bad taste in the mouth. It does, and I I can sort of see both sides of this. I think the one problem or, or the one area where I think Albion may be slipped up is that in their dealings with this particular player, Nathan Ferguson. Now, again, for a bit of background, players can you, you've seen players as uh, scholars when they're coming through the ranks and, and when they're emerging. Now, they're not allowed to sign professional they're not allowed to sign a professional deal until they hit 17. Now, they can be offered pro terms at 16, but they're not allowed to actually sign that contract until their 17th birthday. And to give you a a different perspective, Birmingham City have got 
16-year-old Jude Bellingham. Now, it seems to me that has been handled so well by everyone concerned. Now, he's going to be 17 years old, I think, in the next few days. He could sign a professional contract. I believe it looks likely that he might leave. I think Birmingham will get a good deal out of that. He's been obviously integral to Birmingham's progress over the last couple of years. They brought him through, developed him. And all's well that ends well. Now, with Nathan Ferguson, when he came up to his 17th birthday, Albion could have offered him up to a three-year deal. So he would have actually been a player. There would have been no issues going up right until the lad turns 20. Unfortunately, they didn't offer that at the time. And... You know, they got to a point where he, this time last year, Nathan Ferguson was nowhere near the first the first team. So West Bromwich Albion's hierarchy quite feasibly could have thought, well, why are we going to offer him a new deal when this guy cannot get into the first team? Now, of course, Slavan Bilic comes in, Furlong is signed. Slavan Bilic quite quickly decides that actually Ferguson is the right back that he prefers. Ferguson comes in, plays a handful of games brilliantly. He's man of the match on his opening opening game. And he has a brilliant start to his career. And all of a sudden, Albin have left themselves in a position where they're vulnerable because this guy's come in, he's done really well, but they hadn't banked on him doing that well that all of a sudden now they've got to start talking money again and start talking about contracts. So Nathan Ferguson's agent will quite understandably say, well, hang on a second. We're now in a position of strength because you haven't offered us any security in the past. And now Nathan's come in. He's done brilliantly. And actually, we think that the way he's going, he might get a better deal elsewhere. And it's a really fine act, a fine balancing act. A club has to, All clubs have to play. And, and sometimes clubs will get it right. Sometimes they'll... they'll get it wrong and I think on this occasion while I I don't condone the way the Ferguson matter has been handled by player or his agent I do feel that Albion probably got this one wrong in the first place. It's interesting though isn't it I mean the other side of that is Rakeem Harper who uh, not that long ago he'd broken through into the first team there was talk of Tottenham being interested a lot of to-ing and fro-ing on both sides Albion moved then to tie Harper down and yet Harper since then, now that he's got the big proper contract, if you like, hasn't really followed through. And he came on against Brentford, didn't really make any kind of impact in the game. The only thing I remember was a really annoying, pointless flick that didn't come off. He's clearly a talented player and he's he's very powerful. But I look at him and I think what I thought of him when I, when he first broke through, which is that he's a decent footballer. I question, has he got the engine to be a player in championship or certainly Premier League football? I'm not sure. You know, he might cut it. He might really become a useful player. And I'm sure that if he does move on eventually, we'll, we'll get a, a transfer fee for him. But it just shows you that players who show flashes of real talent, which Harper unquestionably has got, it doesn't always follow that they're then going to come through and become the player for your team. I should just point out as well, Chris, on Twitter, some really interesting responses to the poll. As I say, massively in favour of keeping the academy. And I want to keep the academy, by the way. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But Bearwood bloke, Spyro Markatich, pointing out that we've got £12 million for Berahino, George Thorne, £3 million quid, 
Chris Wood, a million quid. Kamar Roof, a million quid. Tyler Roberts, two million quid. Morgan Rogers, who went to Man City, four million quid, rising to eight million. So he makes the point that it's paying for itself over the last six to seven years. What I do like about the academy as well is that it bonds local kids to West Bromwich Albion and their families and their communities. I don't think you can put a price on that, but I think that's really important. And Albion is seen to be a player in their local community, somebody who is nurturing talent in Sandwell primarily, but across the West Midlands. And I think that's such an important thing for our club to be able to do. It's one of the things that a football club can do that lots of institutions aren't in a position to do. I just hope the club isn't losing interest, though, because understandably, as I say, they're cheesed off when the Louis Barra situation happens. They're cheesed off when the Ferguson situation happens. And we have lost some really good people behind the scenes working at the academy. And I do hope that they've done that just because they think it's a better career opportunity, not because they think West Bromwich Albion has somehow lost interest in developing an academy. Because all the arguments are there, notwithstanding these couple of examples, to keep the academy going and keep it going strong. Well, do you ever do you ever think is? I mean, you know, Nathan Ferguson will go for a fee, and that fee will be decided by a, a group called the Professional Football Compensation Committee, which is a it's not a permanent body; it's a, a ad hoc group of of several people who deal with transfers or, or from legal or deal with legal matters at various levels of football. So they'll decide his fee, and I would imagine it'll be fairly sympathetic to Albion. They'll base it on several things, such as the number of games he's played, the number of clubs that were genuinely interested in him, the upbringing and mentoring and training that Albion have given him throughout his years as a as a youth player. So all of that will be factored in and I think Albion will do well out of it. And and you're quite right. And and the um tweet that, that Spiro sent in is spot on and, and there are other people who have you know benefited from working or, or being part of the academy it's not just players I mean coaches have included Michael Appleton and Keith Downing James Shan you know all of whom have either gone on to become coaches or managers elsewhere or or have done well and, and emerged at the club and, and actually done well and then one of, one of the things about the academy and this is something that the the former academy manager Mark Harrison used to say is that first facet is to try and get players into your own team now if you can't do that the next one is to try and get players moves to other clubs lower down the league chain where they will play football and actually where you can make money on them and Albion have done that in the main and I know it's frustrating when these players leave for nothing it's extremely hard to take but you know what it, it it's part of the football chain and that's where Albion are as a football club in terms of, of their youth setup and it, it's not particularly pleasant to stomach at times as fans but it, it is boy it is Chris, thank you very much indeed. Excellent stuff as always. Uh, don't forget you can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Lepkowski. You can follow me on Twitter at Goldberg Radio. And don't forget, if you want to sponsor this podcast, the only West Bromwich Albion podcast regularly to feature in the Apple Podcast Football Top 20, do get in touch. It's goldbergradio at gmail.com. And hello to our listeners in far-flung places. I know that we've got listeners in Vietnam, in Canada, in Ireland, in France, and in the United States. Welcome to you all. Be lovely to hear more from you and the circumstances in which you are listening to this podcast. See you next week, Chris. Thanks very much indeed. And here's hoping for six points against Sheffield Wednesday and Hull City. Cheers. Thank you.